Amen. Well, thank you so much, music team, for pointing us to Christ this morning. I love singing together with you on Sunday mornings. I was sitting on the front row here thinking the only downside of Sundays is that it's only one day a week. I love these Sunday mornings and being able to be together with God's people. So, so glad that you're here. We're going to be in Psalm 76 this morning, Psalm 76. And just a quick update on where we are as far as our preaching calendar and plans for the future. Today will be our last of the Summer in the Psalms series. If you're uh, new to Sunrise or just checking us out, we typically take about 10 Psalms per summer. And we look at the book of Psalms, and it's really a 15-year series that we're in the midst of, so we just crossed the halfway point, and we will pick it up again next year in Psalm 77. So that will be in June of next year. That's the plan. So next week, we're going to start a new series, and that's going to be in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs is a study that I've been wanting to do with you for a long time, and just seems like the time is ripe to stay in the wisdom literature, which we'll talk a little bit more about what that is and the specific genre, the type of writing that Proverbs is. It's a little bit different than maybe some of the rest of the Bible stories that you'll read uh, in, the, in the Old Testament and also in the New. So we'll take a little bit of time and talk about that next week. What is that book, and how could it be helpful? helpful for us. I think it's immensely helpful and practical, and I hope that you'll join us and get ready for that study uh, starting next week. So Psalm uh, 76. And this, uh, this morning, we're reflecting on this idea of God's history of working on behalf of his people. I've titled the message, When History Meets Eschatology, and that might excite some of you, and it might make others of you really nervous, and some of you may be just completely confused. What in the world is this guy talking about this morning? I really mean it in a very simple way. Eschatology, as many of you will be aware, it just means a study of the end times, what happens next. And to the disappointment of many in here this morning, I have no timelines here this morning for us. That's not what we're doing. Really, the burden that I have this morning of this specific sermon and text is just to show you that God has acted in history and he will act again in the future. That's all we're saying. History meets eschatology. It's a reflection on the past, on how God has worked, and it's also pointing us forward to the hope that we have in the future. Your history becomes determinative, at least in theory for humans, of how you're going to act in the future. Consider something like credit. If any of you have ever applied for a mortgage or a credit card or a car loan or whatever it is, they've run a credit check on you, and a credit is just your history. Do they pay on time? What's the debt-to-income ratio and things like this? I learned a little bit about credit. My first, my first, I'd call it my first real job. I had some other odd jobs before this, but my first real job was with a company called Digif PCS. Digif ended up being bought out by Powertel. Some of you remember that name. And then Powertel ended up being bought out by T-Mobile. So I sold phones. And back in the day, back in my dinosaur days, they were cell phones, not the digital smartphones that we have now that can do anything and everything for us. And it, it was almost like this was the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, and for many people in that time, it was almost like you were selling magic. There's this device that you can like drive around and talk on. There's no wire. And we had come to the point where you know, the cordless phone was imaginable, but it was still plugged in. The base was plugged in. You could walk around your house. But now you had the cordless phone that worked all over the city. It was amazing. And so I was selling these. And 
the biggest disappointment for a salesperson in that position, many of you deal with this, I know in your jobs, uh, whether you're doing real estate, uh, perhaps you deal with this all day, every day, it's when you can't get that credit approved, isn't it? You go through the whole process and you sell the phone, they want it, they pick their plan, and then you run the credit check, it comes back, it's like, I'm sorry, this isn't gonna work out. And it's very disappointing because it's a sale lost for you, the customer's disappointed, and uh, history, it, it really does follow you around. And so this morning, what I want to do is think of, think of that type of model, and let's just reflect a little bit on how has God acted in the past, and what has he promised for the future? What are some of the promises that you immediately think about that we hold to, that we believe God is yet to do? I just pulled a few, and there are many, many, many more that you could think of, I'm sure, and some of them we would see as positive, and some we would see as maybe negative or scary, promises of judgment. We'll talk about that more. Start out with one here, Philippians 1.6. We believe that God has promised that he's going to finish his saving work. Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news this morning? Because many of us look around and maybe look in the mirror and think, I'm a mess. Um, I'm a mess. God's going to do it. He's going to do it. And so we start to ask the question, if you're a little bit reflective, well, what's, what's the basis for this? What, why do we believe God is going to do this? Well, let's look at how he's acted in the past, and that's what we'll do this morning. What about judgment? Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment... People will give an account for every careless word they speak. Wow, that's a strong statement, isn't it? Jesus promised that everyone's going to give an account for the life that you live, for the things that you thought, for the words that you spoke. Prevalent in our generation as well, as in every generation, is sexual immorality, promise of judgment. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will bring the sexually immoral and adulterous to judgment. He will judge them. There's a judgment coming. And we could cite many, many more passages. How about the promise of the new heavens and the new earth? I have uh, part of this on the screen for you. I'm gonna read a little bit more full context for this. Revelation 21, starting in verse two, and I saw the holy city, The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And then he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. These are the promises God has made, just a sampling. We could cite many, many, many more. What has God done in the past that assures us that he is capable of doing these things again in the future? And that brings us into Psalm 76. As I mentioned a few times as we've jumped back into the Psalms this summer, there are divisions within the Psalms, what we call books of the Psalms. So there's really a collection within the collection, just like the Bible is 
a book. It's a single book. We call this a Bible. But there's also 66 books within the book. Well, even within that, the Psalms, it's a collection of books within the books. And so what we have here is book three. We're in the midst of book three. Books one and two largely are of David, Psalms of David, as Psalm 28 that we read this morning from book one. And it's about the establishment of David's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel that God had promised him. And it's really the first book deals with more David confronting the enemies of God. And then the second book really deals more with the establishment of the kingdom, a very, very common theme, a common word in the Psalms of book two is kingdom or Israel um, or uh, Jerusalem, the temple. These are common themes, God establishing his place and his people. Well, then we move into book three, and we could summarize that with the word devastation, and that's when the kingdom begins to crumble and fall apart. And so this is the book, the collection that we're in right now. And so many of these psalms, they have a a distinctly uh, mournful or tone of lamentation to them, that we're waiting, we're waiting. Book five, as you look to the end, it gets extremely positive. Look at what God has done. Look at God's establishment of his rule and reign over the whole world. But book three, we're kind of in the middle of this already not yet type of thing. God has worked, but we're still waiting on him to work, which is where we find ourselves this morning as well. So here we are. I'll give you four points as we walk through the psalm this morning. God is known, God has saved, God will judge, and then lastly, God is worthy. Let's read the psalm, and we'll work our way through it. Psalm 76. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains, full of prey. The stout-hearted were ripped, were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment, to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. It's such an interesting psalm, and I want to give you a little bit of historical background into what I think is going on here in this psalm. First of all, you have four places that are mentioned in this psalm. You have Judah, Israel, Salem, and then Zion. Now, I'll try to show you here. Hopefully this will work out for us. All right, um, you'll remember that the kingdom divided shortly after David. So we have David the good king of Israel, his son Solomon reigns under your United Kingdom, but he's told that the kingdom's going to split after you. And so as soon as Solomon dies, there's a split of the kingdom. And so the kingdom divides into the north and the south. So the north here, this is the green shaded areas, 
These are the tribes of uh, these 10 tribes, Asher, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Issachar, Manasseh, Naphtali, Reuben, Simeon, and Zebulun. These are the 10 tribes that inhabit the northern part of the kingdom here, shaded in green. The southern kingdom then is the purple here, and they are defeated in 586. So we have Judah and Benjamin. Commonly, when you're reading your Bible, you'll see it referred to, if you see it referred to as Israel, and you're reading particularly like later in the prophets, Israel is referring to the north, Judah is referring to the south, and so that's the shorthand for how they become uh, mentioned. They are mentioned in the scripture. And so you'll see here, there's a reference here both to Israel and then also to Judah. So he's speaking collectively to Israel at this point. Now, he drills down a little bit closer. He talks about Salem and then Zion. Now, where do we get these ideas of Salem and Zion? Salem is actually another name for Jerusalem. And it's a reference pulled from Genesis 14 with Melchizedek. Some of you, I know, uh, ladies did a study a couple of years ago on Hebrews, and we actually ended up talking about Melchizedek a lot um, in the book of Hebrews. So Melchizedek is the one who's the king of Salem mentioned in Genesis 14. So why would the biblical writer use an old term like that? Um, Why would he use an old term? I think he's pulling back all the way from Genesis and saying, this is the place that God has established as his dwelling place. Now, I know the map, you can't really see it from the, your perspective there, but right here around the red dot, this is Jerusalem, okay? So Jerusalem is on the northern tip, close to the northern tip at least, of the southern kingdom. And this was the place, this was the hot spot. And then more specifically than that, we also have a mention of Mount Zion, which is where the temple itself would be. So it's a very specific place that he's talking about. In Judah, this is verse one, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. So Judah and Israel, his abode has been established in Salem, that's Jerusalem, his dwelling place in Mount Zion. It may be hard for us to really wrap our minds around how important geography is in the Bible. The biblical authors, a lot of times, will use just a city, and they're assuming you have some familiarity with the city. They had a close, close, tight connection to the land, to their place, and the land was extremely important to them. You couldn't just replace it. Many of you know I had a sabbatical this summer, had a little bit of time off, and one of the authors I picked up and read some this summer was Wendell Berry. Some of you may be Wendell Berry fans. Uh, he's sort of this agrarian writer who uh, years ago, he decided to kind of forego the conveniences of the city. He has a little ranch farm up in Kentucky, and he decided he was going to work this farm with horses. So he actually has horses and like old school. Um, and so he, he writes uh, novels and books and essays and things, and he's really a, really a brilliant writer. And I'll be honest, like reading Wendell Berry this summer, I kind of, there were moments I said, you know, I think I'm just going to go find a few acres and just kind of live off the grid, buy me a horse like Wendell Berry and go work my land. And then I remembered, I really don't like horses. So like, never mind, maybe a tractor. That sounds like a lot more fun. One of the things I grabbed though with Berry, and I, I like a lot of what Wendell Berry says. I don't love everything Wendell Berry says. One of the things I grabbed, though, was this tight connection of a people and a land. And he's talking about just learning the contours of your property, and he has this property that's up in Kentucky. It's Rolling Hills, and he talks, talks a lot about what, 
you can plant at what time of the year and how the, when it rains, what the water does and how the river affects what the, the, uh, the moisture. And it's, it's really profound when you start to really understand a property. And even at one point talks about, you, don't even, you shouldn't even plant anything until you've walked the property and understood the contour of the land. And I just, th- I just remember thinking, I think this is probably a little bit of an image of what Israel felt like. This is our property. These tribes, they had allotments. I don't have that map for you today, but there was allotments within Israel, and that was theirs. And even a year like Jubilee, which was supposed to happen every 50 years, there was a return of the property to those tribes, and this this was their place. You couldn't just plop them down and relocate them to another place. That's not how it worked. So this is very, very important to them. And what was most important is that this is the place. This is the place that God had chosen. So this, this little spot right here, this was the hot spot. God was here in a, in a very real sense at the temple. And so this is very, very important to them. I think it's even more than that, though. Warren Martin wrote a book that I think is really, really helpful. Uh, it's called Bound for the Promised Land. And what Martin is making the point in that book, and he's not the only one that makes this point, but he says what the land is really doing, it's a pulling forward of Eden-like language into the promised land and then eventually into the new heavens and the new earth. So picture this. It's not just the land that my granddad had. It's God's place. This is where God is. And so that's why it's so important for the psalmist to know this is God's place. God is known in this place, in this geography. He's got to be known. The land is so important in Old Testament history. And that's why it's significant as well, pushing forward, that the new place is called what? It's the new heavens and the new earth, but specifically a new what? A new city, which is the new Jerusalem. It's not the new Jacksonville. That would, I don't know how that would go over. Or the new Cairo, or the new London. It's, it's not that. It's the new Jerusalem. Why? Because that's the place God dwells. That's God's place. It's the new Eden-like place. So, with all of that, I want to take you back to a time when there's an advancing army that's trying to take out Jerusalem. Now, imagine you're in the Old Testament here, putting yourself in that spot. Your vision of the land and the property and the place is this is God's place and now there are these terrible godless people that are coming in trying to take it from us. We know that the kingdoms fell. We know that the northern kingdom falls in 722. We know that the southern kingdom falls around 586, 587 BC. But in that window, it's not a straight line, all right? It's not a straight line conquer. They conquered the northern kingdom, and they started trying to take the southern kingdom, but it wasn't immediate. It wasn't immediate. So I want to take you back to a time when they tried to conquer Jerusalem and were unsuccessful. In this case, we know that it falls eventually. In this case, God rebuffed their advances. So let's go there for just a few minutes this morning. 2 Kings 18 and 19 is where our story will be. You can turn there if you'd like. Uh, You don't have to turn there. I'm going to summarize the story uh, for us. 2 Kings 18 and 19. The year is around 701 BC. 
And if you're keeping track of the timeline here, the northern kingdom has been defeated for about 20 years or so. Sennacherib, who's the Assyrian king, he's coming in with an advancing army and he wants to take out Jerusalem. And remember, this close connection with the people and their God with this place. And so a defeat of Jerusalem would mean, in their minds, a defeat of Yahweh. We've defeated Yahweh. We've defeated God, their God. Our God's better than their God. So Sennacherib attempts this siege of the city. And the fall of the city, it really seems to be completely inevitable. Seems like they're gonna go down. There's dueling prophecies. One prophet is saying, Jerusalem's gonna fall. Tell Hezekiah the king. Hezekiah was a good king in Judah at the time. And then another prophet stands up and says, no, actually, they're not gonna win, at least not right now. And this is Isaiah the prophet. So these dueling prophecies go back and forth, and then the time of judgment actually comes. Isaiah is, of course, right, and Hezekiah prays, and God delivers them. Now, it's miraculous. The army is around them, and 2 Kings 19.35 records this. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. This is what I think this psalm is most likely referring to. 185,000 that were struck dead by the Lord. This is a miraculous defeat, obviously, and this is what the psalmist, I believe, is reflecting on in verse three when it says, he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. God totally demolished them. Just to put that in perspective, 185,000 troops the Allied forces lost 210,000 troops at the D-Day invasion. So we're getting not quite to that number, but pretty close. That's a lot. Absolute catastrophe. What's interesting is the king, after this, he retreats off to Nineveh. His sons end up killing him and take his throne in his place. So it's not a very happy ending for King Sennacherib here. This is what happens. Now, if you're like me, you've probably at some point, you've watched some of the modern superhero uh, types of movies, and it always amazes me that you'll have these epic battles where they go back and forth and good guy, bad guy fighting, these epic battles, and then suddenly the good guy will have some burst of power and energy, and he'll just kind of zap everybody, and you know, it's over. And I'm always like, why didn't you just do that in the first place? Like, what? You know, if you could do that, like, just just take them all out, man. Like, why? But, you know, it doesn't make for good. You can't sell tickets that way. Like, you got to have this epic, you know, build up and, like, who's going to win? Like, I don't know. Oh, look, the good guy won. Like, wow, crazy. Um, they kind of all work that way. I think there's probably some in Israel that probably thought that. Like, God, you know what? Because normally God's MO was to give them strength to fight the battle. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the victory, but you got to go fight. But sometimes, like the Red Sea, sometimes like this, God just reaches down and he just wins immediately and instantly. And I think a lot of us, we just sort of wish it worked that way all the time, right? God, can you just, can you just win this so that I don't have to go out there with my sword and my shield? Can you just do this? But oftentimes, that's not how God works. 
oftentimes it's giving us strength to fight the battle rather than reaching down out of heaven and zapping people. Typically doesn't work that way. So God is known. Why is God known? Well, God's known because of his saving work. And one of those acts of saving is 2 Kings 19. This, when Jerusalem was attempted to be sieged and it was unsuccessful. No doubt, this story would have been told and retold and retold in Israel. It's really as consequential as the Red Sea event as far as God reaching down in history and doing something miraculous to give people victory. There's not, there, there are others, but there's not that many stories that are like that um, in the Bible. This is really unusual for God to reach down in such a way. So God is known. Next, the next few verses are really a poetic reflection on what just happened. So hey, we see what God has done and he offers a reflection. Verse four, glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. God is more glorious than the mountains, as majestic as the mountains are. Their entire ecosystem, full of prey and full of hunter, God is more majestic than all of that. He says the stout-hearted or the strong, the valiant, are nothing compared to God, the most well-trained soldier. He's nothing. And then this last phrase is really interesting. He says they were unable to use their hands. A more literal translation of that is actually this. They could not find their hands. That gives a whole new poetic image to that, doesn't it? They couldn't find their hands. It was absolute defeat. They couldn't even fight the battle. God is known, God is saved, and next, God will judge. The way God has dealt with his enemies in the past becomes predictive of the way he's going to deal with them in the future. Now, sometimes God waits a long, long time before he deals with people, and sometimes we get impatient with God's plan. We just want him to move on with things. But sometimes he does. Let's read these verses. Verse seven. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you? I was helped by some reflections from James Montgomery Boyce. He was a longtime pastor up in uh, Philadelphia, uh, for, uh, 10th Presbyterian Church. And he died, I believe it was in 2000, 2001. Uh, but just left a legacy through his uh, sermons and commentaries uh, that are so helpful. And James Montgomery Boyce said about this particular text, four reflections on God's judgment that I think are worth looking at. Number one, God alone is to be feared. God alone is to be feared. Verse seven, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you? The question is obviously rhetorical. Who can stand before you? We use rhetorical questions all the time, especially if you have kids, you use rhetorical questions. And your kids pick up on that pretty quickly, like, I don't think dad's looking for an answer for this one. I think he's using this as a rhetorical question. Who can stand before God? The obvious answer is no one can stand before God. Jesus made a really provocative statement similar to this. He said in Matthew 10, 28, <laughs> listen to this statement. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He says, don't worry about people. What's the worst they can do? They can kill you. 
said, what you need to be concerned about is God, because God can take you out both physically and the immaterial part of you, what we commonly refer to as the soul. God alone is really to be feared. Now, on a human level, we can show respect and reverence. Many of you are in the military, and there's a chain of command and a certain amount of decorum and respect that you owe that person that's over you, and I support that, appreciate that. But in the ultimate sense, only God really is the one that we have to be worried about. Only God, only God can destroy the body and the soul. Fear him. Worry more about what he thinks than what man thinks. Every mouth will be silenced by God's judgment. Verse eight, from the heavens you utter judgment, the earth feared and was still. It's sweeping language. The whole earth stops. I picture Job's scene at the end of the book of Job. Job is complaining. He's been mistreated. He wants a day in court with God. God gives him that day. Says, okay, Job, I'll let you speak but in my courtroom, but first you need to pass the bar exam. Here's what you need to do. Question number one, where were you when I created the heavens? Uh-oh, you know, I studied the wrong material. This test is not going to go well. And the scene ends with Job says, I put my hand over my mouth and I stop in silence. That's gonna be the judgment day of God. Oh, we got some brilliant people we got some brilliant people making very bad arguments these days about one thing or another, trying to justify one sin or another. There's gonna be no talking back and there's gonna be no counterpoint. God will win. He absolutely wins. And the whole earth will fear and be still. There's nothing to say when God judges in the end. That's how it's gonna work. Next, God mingles wrath or God mingles wrath with mercy for the afflicted. Verse nine, when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah, reflect on that. God mingles wrath with mercy for the afflicted. There's a, in the Bible, we've mentioned this before, but oftentimes you find salvation stories and the flip side of that is a judgment story. In fact, I would challenge you with this. Think of a story in the Bible where someone is saved and there's not someone judged. I don't think you can actually do it. Noah is saved, the world is judged. Israel is saved, Egypt is drowned, they're judged. And so you get this commonly put together, salvation and judgment. And really Christ is the ultimate example for that. Christ is judged, he takes our sin on the cross. We are saved and he is judged. He bears the penalty of our sin as we talked about this morning in our equipping hour. Christ is judged and we're saved. He's the one who is able to save the humble of the earth, as verse nine says. Now here's what's interesting in this next point. God is glorified even in his wrath. Here's what's so interesting. It's a bit mysterious, this phrasing. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. That phrase may be a little bit mysterious, but let me just try to cut to the chase here on what's going on. Even those who were opposed to God in their wrath against God will serve to accomplish God's purpose in the end. You can't avoid it. You will glorify him. Now the Assyrians... The Assyrians are the army that we've been talking about this morning a little bit. Isaiah reflects on the Assyrian invasion and he actually records God's words here. I want you to see what he does. This is in Isaiah 10 and this would have been 
a few years before the story we just talked about in 2 Kings. It says this, Isaiah 10.5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. That's God speaking. The staff in their hands is my fury. That is such an interesting verse, isn't it? Are the Assyrians doing what they want to do? Of course they are. They want to conquer Israel. They want to take out Jerusalem. They want them for their own people. They want to take the land. But God said, you know what? I'm actually letting you do that, and you're accomplishing my purposes in doing that. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Isaiah 10. So not too many verses later, he says this. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, what work was that? The work of the Assyrians to conquer Jerusalem and Mount Zion. He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. (laughs) Now, who did it? God did it, but he's gonna judge them for doing it. They're working his plan. I think that's what this verse is hinting at. The wrath of man shall praise you. How does the wrath of man praise you? Well, in accomplishing God's ultimate purposes for himself to make his own name known. The Assyrians are simply the rod of his anger. God is using them to accomplish his purpose, to chastise Israel, ultimately to bring Israel to repentance. It's a complicated issue that we have going on here. But as we've mentioned before, the biblical writers don't seem to feel the same problem or tension that we do of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. They just sit them right beside each other and just say, deal with it. Here they are. And it's, very, it's, it's a little bit mind-boggling for us to work through this together. All right, so the Lord does this. The Lord will judge in the end. Don't take, take his judgment lightly. Where does that lead us? It leads us to a logical conclusion in verse 11. Because we know how God has worked in the past, because we have glimpses of how he's gonna work yet in the future, because we know that God's not gonna be tricked and we know he gives grace to the humble, what should you do? Verse 11, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. What should you do? Well, make your vows and offerings. This is Old Testament type of language. You had certain offerings that are prescribed annually, and you had the certain feasts and festivals they were supposed to participate in. But also, you had free will offerings, so just an offering that you could choose to bring on your own to the Lord because you're grateful for his grace and mercy in your life. And he's saying, make those vows and then keep them. Don't promise a bunch of things that you're not intending to keep. And there's a lot of Old Testament context to this thought. Make that vow and keep it. That brings us, I believe, to a final thought here, and that is, what else are you gonna live for? God is worthy. He's worthy. In Romans 12 sort of way, we also bring our sacrifices and vows to God as living sacrifices. We present ourselves to him. As others have said, it's the problem with the living sacrifice is we keep crawling off the altar, and that's true. So we bring ourselves again and again and again to say, I'm a living sacrifice unto the Lord, whatever he would want to do with me. What else are you gonna live for? What's worth it? Is God worthy? I would say he is. I love the Jim Elliott Elliott quote. He was one of the missionaries who was martyred trying to reach an unreached people group uh, down in Ecuador. He is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't lose the eternal reward. It's worth giving everything up for to live for him. Just a moment, we are gonna get to celebrate communion together, and this is always such a special time for our church family. And as we've been thinking about this idea of God's past and God's future, communion brings us into that reality as well. As we come to this time, we remember what Jesus has done, but it's also where history meets eschatology. We also remember what he's going to do again in the future. It's a historical act that we remember, but it's also a future promise that we remember as well. It's not just about what he did, it's about what he's also going to do in the future. If you're here visiting with us, we're so glad. We practice open communion here at Sunrise, and what that simply means is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate with us today. If you're not sure where you stand or not sure what you think about the gospel or God or the truthfulness of what we've been speaking about, we would just invite you just to watch uh, today as we celebrate communion together in just a moment. Let me pray for us, and I'm gonna ask uh, David and Arena to come and lead us in a song about communion. And as they're doing that, you're free. We have communion elements on the sides. As this song plays, you're free to grab those communion elements if you need to get those. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be together today. We thank you that we can look back and we can see a history of faithfulness. Lord, you're good for the promises that you've made. And these miraculous things, like we see in 2 Kings 19 about the defeat of the Assyrian army when it just seems completely inevitable that Jerusalem is going to fall, you protected them. And so, Lord, we know that you, you have that kind of power yet still. And so, Lord, we know that you are good for your promises in the future, both promises of judgment, promises of the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, promises to complete your work in us, the sanctifying work that you've started. Lord, you're good for those promises. So Lord, now we come just like the psalmist did and we just admit and confess there's nothing else worth living for. There's nothing else that's better than living for Christ and committing our life and our ways to him. So this time of communion, it's an act, again, of confession that we believe the gospel is true. It's a time of celebration to give thanks that we have been forgiven. It's also a time of renewal both personally and corporately for our church family to say we believe the gospel is true and we believe that we are in Christ. Lord, I pray also for some who may be here and this isn't connecting. It doesn't make a lot of sense what we're talking about with the gospel, with being forgiven. I pray that you would use this time, use your word, and we pray that you would show them their need for Christ today. We pray in Christ's name, amen.